You know, when John the Baptist announced the coming of the kingdom of God, his message was very simple. He preached, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is drawn near. And in the same way, just a chapter later in Matthew 4, when Jesus inaugurated his ministry, he didn't vary from that message at all. He preached the exact same words. His message was not John 3.16, for God so loves the world, as powerful as that is. His message over and over again was repent, because the kingdom of God has come near. In fact, if you want to enter into that kingdom, he says, it only happens through repentance. If you want to grow in the ways of that kingdom, it only happens through repentance. If you want to be channels through which the kingdom flows, it only happens in the lives of those who walk in repentance. We live in a culture today, and, and this culture very much has permeated the church as well, that basically says there is no such thing as right or wrong. You determine what is right or wrong for you, and that's your truth, and no one has the right to correct you. Well, the problem with that fallacy, of course, is that it's led to so much brokenness and emptiness. But we see that same brokenness and emptiness in the body of Christ because we have embraced that. So the Word of God comes to us when the Word speaks to us. So often we, we receive the Word of God in whatever form it may be as a suggestion. Because we have our lifestyle mapped out, we are generally like our own culture. We are people who are lovers of pleasure. We are lovers of self. We we love entertainment, we, 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 we love wealth and comfort, we're materialistic, all those different things that bombard us as the people of God that capture our heart. The Lord says, I want to break you free from all those things that you can really enter into the riches that I have for you. But the only way that will take place is, is through repentance. There is no relationship with God without repentance. There is no growing in the things of God without repentance. Our scripture this morning is Matthew chapter 3. He writes these words concerning John the Baptist, who was at the river baptizing many people. Matthew writes that when John saw many Pharisees and Sadducees, that is the religious leaders of Jesus' day, coming to watch him baptize, he denounced them. You brood of snakes, he exclaimed, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Well, this is the third in a three-part series in repentance. It's taken five weeks uh, between some COVID stuff, and then last week I took sick myself. Uh, thank the Lord, it was just good old-fashioned flu. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> wasn't COVID, it was just good old-fashioned throwing up and, you know, just like the good old days. But uh, I just want to thank uh, Pastor Spencer for chipping in last minute. He did a great job. Uh, it's always great to have someone like Pastor Spencer to rely on. He brought you the word last week. And wasn't that a great word? I mean, consider you started that afternoon, <laughs> the study, uh, from what I understand. So I said, hey, that's the key to short messages. We've got to start studying two hours before the service. We're, we're good to go. But uh, you may recall, it's been, this is the fifth Sunday now, but the third part of our series, we, we've been talking about repentance, and, and, and we began with talking about essentially the essence of repentance. What is the essence of repentance? We saw the Greek word metanoi, which simply means to change the way you think, but to change your way in the sense of it's what you do after you understand. 
So repentance has to do not so much with remorse and emotion. Those, those things can certainly be involved. But it really has to do more with what you do than just what you feel, the emotions you go through. Those feelings are fine if they bring you to the proper place, and that is to actually do what it is you perceive or understand the Holy Spirit speaking to you about that you need to change as you turn from that and you turn to God and you allow the Lord to begin to reshape your life. Then we talked about in the second week the edge of repentance. We looked at John's words in Luke 3. He said, even now God's axe is poised to chop down your barren tree right down to its roots. And what that has to do with, it has to do with those areas in our life where the Holy Spirit wants to cut into your life and mine. He wants to go to the very root of those things that are feeders into our life that actually bring darkness, confusion, uh, that rob us of anointing, rob us of authority, of confidence with God. The Lord wants to go right to those roots and uproot those things, whether they are belief systems or fears, whatever it may be, because they rob us of everything God has for us. They strangle out the life of God, and they really suck the life out of us. So the Lord wants to deal with those things, but to deal with them, we must stop trying to just dress up our sin or be more respectable in our sin, but instead say, Lord, bring your axe and go to the root of it. Tear that thing out of my life. I don't want it. This morning, I want to talk about the evidence of repentance, and it's really wrapped up again in John's words in verse 8. He says, prove by the way you live. You see those words, the way you live. Prove by the way that you live that you have repented of your sins, you've turned from them, and you have turned to God. You see, what John was doing was confronting these religious leaders who believed certain things, who went through all the motions, but there was no evidence in their life. When you look at the way they lived, there was no evidence that they actually believed the word they professed to believe. There was no real change in their life. There was an outward conformity to certain rituals, certain things you could and could not do, but there was nothing in their heart that really reflected the love and nature of God. You see, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they wanted the kingdom of God to come. Just like the prophets foretold, they wanted it as bad as the disciples did, but they wanted it for a different reason. They wanted the kingdom to come because it would throw off the oppression of the Roman emperor, the conquerors, and it would actually enable them to have more power within the nation. They would have more prestige. They'd be able to control more. They wanted the kingdom to come, but they didn't want the king. And when the king came, they did everything they could to make sure that he did not rule. Now, you may say, well, I can't relate to that, but I think we all can. Because you see, for a lot of us, we talk about enjoying God's presence when we gather to worship. And we enjoy the presence of the Lord. We even lift our hands to the Lord. I'm not saying we're hypocritical, but as we're doing those things or say how important those things are and sing some of the beautiful songs we sang this morning, at the same time, watch the lives of those who worship the Lord. Watch the relationships. Watch the behaviors. Watch those areas of their lives that when push comes to shove, we still do what we want to do. We still live the way we want to live, morally or immorally. We justify it. We excuse it. We know what God says, but we basically do what we want. We do things that fly directly in the face of what Jesus came to do in our lives. And so the question is, do you just want the kingdom or do you want the king? Because, you see, you can't have the kingdom without the king. 
You can have ritual. You can have religion. You can have all those things. You can have the pomp and the ceremony. You can have all the, all the, uh, all, all the lavish exterior things, but you do not have the kingdom. So that's why the message was not, the kingdom is at hand, let's party. No, the message was, the kingdom is here. The king is here, so repent. Repent. The king is coming, and the king has his agenda. John said in Luke chapter 3, and ask yourself if you're doing this. Prepare the way for the Lord's coming. Clear the road for him. The valleys will be filled and the mountains and hills made level. The curves will be straightened and the rough places made smooth. Read the last line with me. And then all people will see the salvation sent from God. You see, as evangelicals, we're especially guilty because we have this history, we have this, this understanding, perhaps, of revival. And the need for revival in the church, the need for revival, or more accurately, an awakening in our cities for things to change. But hear me, friends, we need to understand as the people of God, there are things God calls us to do or the kingdom will never come. Revival will never happen. You see, we have this notion that it's just something that falls into our laps, well, God is sovereign, so all of a sudden people are just gathered together, and before you know it, just the Holy Spirit falls, and there's just great revival. No, 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 no. Anywhere there has been a move of God, anywhere there's been a shaking in the city, it has begun because there has been a group, there has been a few, there have been people who had gathered together and they have prepared their hearts and they've called out to God so he would come. Now, they have done that in response to the Holy Spirit's bidding. But I want to suggest to you the Holy Spirit is, is calling us to the same thing today. But there are many, when the light shines upon them, who very simply roll over, pull over the sheets, and go back to sleep. But there's a remnant of people in the body of Christ today who are saying, no more. Lord, we don't want any more of this stuff. We're so sick of this world spirit. We're so sick of the stuff that permeates your church. We're so sick of the stuff that I've allowed into my life that just contaminates me, that makes me sluggish and renders me impotent in the kingdom of God. Lord, I just want you. I just want you. Whatever I need to do, whatever I need to get rid of, whatever I need to recognize, whatever I need to repent, I'm not comparing myself to anybody else. I'm not blaming anybody else. I'm not looking to anybody else for the answer. Lord, it's just you and me and what you can do in my heart if I'll respond to what you are calling me to. Let everyone else make their own choice. But Lord, I want you. I want your kingdom to come here. I want you to do what you say you will do here. Nobody can stop you if I will prepare the way. And that's what John says, do these things and then people will see the salvation of the Lord come. Our city needs an awakening, my friends. We know that. But don't forget, judgment begins in the house of God. Judgment begins when my people who are called by my name humble themselves and repent, and seek my face. Then I move in their midst, and that fire, and that wind, and that rain begins to move through the community, and it comes awakened to the Spirit and to the things of God. Salvation comes to the city, but it begins among the people. You see, when a city 
prepares for monarchy or dignitaries. Some of us remember, are old enough to remember when the, when the queen came to visit the royal family, or I remember when the pope came when I was ministering in Quebec, and, and the pope would come. Friends, when people like that come, you don't just, you know, repair a few potholes in the street. You know the route they are going to take, however miles it may be, and what happens? The entire streets are dug up. Brand new asphalt. The whole route, everywhere they're going, brand new landscape, and it is beautiful. Why in the world would you go through so much trouble? It's because simply if you want royalty to come, you have to make the preparations, or they will not come. And that's what John's message is here. If you want the king to visit your life, you must submit to his protocol. You must make preparation, and if you do, he will visit you. He will visit you. It's interesting that John uses the words when he sees the religious leaders standing on the bank of the river. It's interesting as well that it says they'd come to watch what John was doing. Didn't kind of participate. No, no, no. They weren't going to humble themselves in public. They just came to watch. They came to scrutinize. They came to criticize. They came to maybe take notes on who was showing up there. They had no intention themselves whatsoever of heeding the message and themselves actually being baptized and entering into the kingdom. They were fine where they were. They just came to watch. And John looks at them and he says, you brood of snakes, you serpents, you vipers. Now, when we read that, it seems like John's really angry. You know, he's just kind of lashing out at them, or maybe he's trying to embarrass them in front of the crowd. I don't believe that's what John was doing. The word brood simply means offspring. And what he's pointing to the fact that what was operating in these people's hearts was actually evidence that they were the offspring or descendants of the original serpent, the devil. Because snakes produce snakes. And if you trace back the devil's origin in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you see that he was once called what? Lucifer. Lucifer, a beautiful name, it means light bearer, shining one, morning star. Listen to this, Ezekiel 28, 14, that he was on the holy mountain of God. He was closest to God, closest to the things of God. And in the same way what John was saying to his religious leaders is that you men are the closest in all of Israel to the things of God. You're the closest to the holy things of God, to the spiritual things, to the presence of God. You actually get to walk freely in the temple grounds, in the throne of God, in the, in, in, inside the temple. You get to move freely in all those things. You folk ought to know better. And yet you who are the closest, you who knew the most, you respond the least, and you became the worst, just as your father Satan did before you. The Bible says Lucifer once stood before God himself, and yet with pride in his heart, he said, I will do what I will do. I will do what I want to do. And it was that rebelliousness of heart that created the serpent. And his offspring, I believe John is saying, are those not sinners, not those who don't know any better. The offspring of the serpent are those who are the closest to the things of God. And yet their heart still says, I will do what I want to do. When God speaks to me, when push comes to shove, I will 
what I will. Friends, we get to see there's a division coming in the body of Christ. It's got nothing to do with denominational labels. It's got nothing to do with how high you jump or how much you dance. It's got nothing to do with worship styles. It's simply got to do with the people who have a heart for God, that when God speaks to them in this day, when the Holy Spirit lays his finger upon things in their life, they're not playing games. They're not messing around with it. They're saying, Lord, I hear you speaking to me. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. You're going to have a whole nother body of people who name themselves believers. And I'm not judging anybody. I'm not, that's not my place to judge. But I'll tell you this, the, the, the delineation you're going to see is people who justify their sin. People who justify the things the Lord is saying. If you're my child, you cannot do this. You can't live that way. You can't behave that way. You can't do those things. You've got to stop screwing around. And listen to the voice of the Lord when he's speaking to you. Because I know my people. My people know my voice, and they follow me. There will be others who profess to know me. There will be others who are very comfortable in church settings, very comfortable in spiritual settings, but they don't know me. Their hearts are far from me. Though their lips draw near to me, they don't know me. But there will be others. They may not look as polished. They they may not look as sophisticated as, as some of the others. When I speak, they listen. And because they walk in repentance, not beating themselves, not walking in condemnation, but an attitude that says, Lord, I see what you're saying, and I will do what you're telling me to do, or I will stop doing what you're telling me to stop doing. In those lives, the dam opens, the river flows. Ministry happens. Life happens because they live in an attitude of repentance. And John says to them in his day, and he warns you and me, that even though we may profess faith in the king, if we are not submitted to him, then we are serving the serpent. Because you can't serve two masters at once. It's one or the other. And before they have a chance to play the card that they are descendants of Abraham, John says that doesn't count for anything. The only thing that counts is that you demonstrate the same absolute trust and obedience to God that Abraham did. That's what makes you a child of Abraham. If you have his heart, if you have his responsiveness, God's not impressed with your religious heritage. In fact, Jesus said to the Christians in Sardis in Revelation 3, verse 1, he said, you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. I believe what he's saying is that how comfortably one moves around Christian circles doesn't count for a thing. That's not the issue. John says, prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. You see, the Lord is not interested in how much church stuff we know. He's not interested with how comfortably we move in church circles. He's interested in the fruit. And I don't mean the fruit of the Spirit. He's interested in the fruit of repentance. Because you see, if there's no fruit of repentance, there's no fruit of the Spirit. But where the fruit of the Spirit is, it's there because you've allowed the Lord to lay the ax to the root of things in your life in order to destroy those things that would suffocate the life of the Spirit that he might actually have his way and bring new life. Well, what are some of the acts of repentance? I'll give you just a few. One of the most obvious, of course, is confession of sin. 
Now, confession of sin is not just saying you're sorry. Confession of sin actually means, the word confess means to say the same thing that God is saying. It means we don't mess around with it, we don't play games, we don't justify it. We say, Lord, you're right. You're right. Now, I may not understand the gravity of it, so Lord, I ask you to show me more, but I'm going to start there. If there's something that you're showing to me, Lord, that this is wrong, then I'm going to stop. You see, confession is not just reciting our sin. It's renouncing our sin. It's hating the sin. It's actually going to battle if need be. It's fasting and praying. Whatever we need to do in order to join with the Holy Spirit to see that thing uprooted, to see that thing stop in our life, or to actually begin to do the thing that the Lord is calling us to do that maybe we've put off for too long. There comes a time when it's no longer enough just to feel bad about it. You ever been there? I know I have. In fact, sometimes you feel like, well, I can't even go to prayer and ask forgiveness for this because I've done it so often. Behavior, attitude, whatever it may be, right? And the Lord says, no, keep coming. But don't ever embrace this attitude that is no big deal. Understand that the soul that sins dies. The soul that sins breaks its fellowship with God. Understand the gravity of your sin. Confess your sin and let's deal with it. Stop it. Be free of it. Because you see, when God speaks to us, if we're not careful, what do we do? We, we develop this mindset. We begin to just kind of justify and, and excuse it and, and kind of, wig, you know, trying to wiggle off the hook. Can you imagine how absolutely ludicrous it is for us to stand before God and somehow justify the sin that he's convicted us of? I mean, is there anything more ridiculous? Don't argue with the Lord. Agree with him. Yes, Lord, I agree with you. I don't even know how you're going to get this out of my life, but I agree with you. I confess it. Lord, I want to renounce this thing. A second act of repentance is reconciliation. Confession is getting right with God. Reconciliation is getting right with people. Jesus said in Matthew 11, if you're standing before the altar in the temple offering a gift to God and suddenly remember that a friend has something against you, leave your gift there beside the altar and go and apologize and be reconciled to him and then come and offer your gift to God. You see, what the Lord makes clear is that my fellowship with God is broken if my relationship with a person is broken. Because you see, no matter what somebody has done to you, no matter how much they have hurt you, wounded you, no matter what offense you carry in your heart, no matter how you've rationalized that, no matter how you've surrounded that thing so that you, know, you try to protect it but you still store it in your heart, whatever the case may be, whatever the person has done, let me let you know in a secret. God loves them as much as he loves you. It doesn't mean what happened doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we can't establish healthy boundaries around here. We have to take care of what's in here. And the Lord says, I'll give you wisdom to know how to deal with the relationship, how far they come, all the interactions. That's fine. You can have some healthy boundaries there. But you cannot allow the enemy in your heart. You cannot allow hurt and offense to fester. You cannot excuse your hatred. You cannot excuse your woundedness, whatever it may be. You have to give that to me. You cannot allow the darkness to rule in your heart. And the Lord says, I know it's not easy. You see, forgiveness is not about excusing what the person has done to me. Forgiveness is refusing to allow that thing to control me, to allow the devil to use it to control me. And the beautiful thing is when you forgive, you think that you're opening the cell block for that person to go free when you discover you're the actual one who walks out of the prison. Because a lot of times that person doesn't even remember or could care less how it affects you. But the devil knows how to use it. And the father says, listen, you've got to understand, all men and women are my sons and daughters. 
and you've got to get along. Again, healthy boundaries, not a problem with that. But you can't allow that offense, that hurt, that anger, that argument, whatever it may be, to rule in your heart. There has to be peace with God. There has to be peace in your heart with or against that person. That's why Jesus said, listen, I'm telling you, you got to love your enemies, not, not just put up with them. you got to allow me to do a work in your heart that is so deep that as I begin to heal, this may take weeks or months, but as I begin to heal, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not only going to help you to let go of that hurt, I'm going to begin to give you some of my insights into the brokenness of that person that you can actually have some compassion and begin to pray for them. It doesn't mean that you're ever going to be reconciled, whatever the context of the relationship may be, whatever, but your heart does not have to be ruled by darkness and pain anymore. Your heart can actually have love in it. Why? Because God the Father has loved you the exact same way. And it's that love that brings freedom. Why? Because the Lord wants ministry to flow through you. He wants grace. He wants healing. He wants virtue. He wants love and life to flow through you. He wants you to experience those rivers, and he knows that offense and broken relationship will actually stop that flow and rob you of the riches of what God wants to pour in and through you. And the Lord does that with love, and he does it with tenderness. He's not saying that happens overnight, but he says, will you begin to walk the journey with me? Will you give me permission? Will you allow me to begin to open that door just a sliver? Because if you really want fellowship with me, if you want the river to flow, it's got to flow this way too. It's broken here if it's broken there. And the third act of repentance is simply restitution. Restitution, of course, means to pay back what you took. And the Bible uses an interesting story about a man named Zacchaeus as a classic example of restitution. Now, most of us probably know the story of Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. When I was a child, I could relate. I was always the shortest. But Zacchaeus did not make the Bible because he was a wee little man. He didn't make the Bible because he climbed a sycamore tree to see the Lord. That's not why. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And I want you to get this for a second. He's a tax collector. He is hated by the religious establishment. He is written off by the religious establishment. If you were a vile person, you were basically called a tax collector, sinner, whatever. You're just in that group. There is no hope for you. And yet this man, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, is in the Bible because of what he did, not what he believed. Because of what he did when Jesus came into his life. Jesus said, Lord, from now on, I will give half, or Zacchaeus said, Lord, I will give half my wealth to the poor. And if I find I have overcharged anyone in his taxes, I will penalize myself by giving him back four times as much. And Jesus' response to the crowd was, don't miss this, people. This is genuine repentance. And you want to believe those Pharisees and Sadducees, those religious leaders were around as well. Maybe even some of those who stood in the bank when John was baptizing, when they were watching John. And John says, you brood of snakes. Don't think for a moment just because you're children of Abraham that you have anything on God. God's not impressed by your heritage. He's impressed by your changed life. And here's this tax collector who the religious leaders reviled, had written off, and what does Jesus say to him? Jesus says, Zacchaeus, your repentance shows that salvation has come to you and your household today, and you are what? You are a true son of Abraham. 
Get that. The man who was a tax collector, who never darkened the door of the temple grounds, who was rejected, reviled, who was kept outside of anything sacred, he was the true son of Abraham, not those who were closest to the things of God. Not those who moved in the temple, not those who sang the songs and lifted their hands in worship and did the sacrifices. They were not children of Abraham. Zacchaeus was. That's a powerful life lesson for us, friends. A powerful lesson. Because what made Zacchaeus stand out was how he responded to God's word to him. And his response was evidence that his, his heart was right with God, a true son of Abraham. Friends, when, when John called the crowd to repentance that day, you can be sure that he was requiring things of them that society would have mocked. Oh, you're wound too tight. You're a wet blanket. Oh, you're prudish or whatever. Don't be crazy. God doesn't expect that. In fact, I would suggest if in a modern-day context, he'd probably even address some things that a lot of Christians would just trivialize. Oh, don't be fanatical. Someone wisely said that the devil is in the details. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you don't want the devil in your life, it's time to start paying attention to the details. It's time to start giving attention to those things that maybe even many Christians around you would just shrug off as harmless. But those are the very ears where the devil comes in and sets up shop in your life. And it's those ears that I neglect that I promise you become my downfall. And ask the worship team to join me as we prepare for the Lord's table. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, from a modern translation, love this word, into the word of God. The word of God is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into our innermost thoughts and desires, and it exposes us for what we really are. You see, this stuff out here is not who we are. It may be an expression in some way, but that's not what the Lord's impressed on, right? The Lord's not impressed by the outside things. He looks at our heart. And if our heart is right, then he receives this. If our heart is not right, he doesn't receive our worship. It's not a sweet-smelling incense to the Lord. That's why in the context of worship, the Holy Spirit speaks to us and says, hey, you need to get this right. You need to repent of this. It's not just to make us feel bad is to invite us to repent, that that thing can be broken, it can be confessed, it can be washed away, that we might then fully express our worship to the Lord from a heart that's been set free and truly be an incense to the Lord and that the Lord might indwell the praises of those people and that the river of God may flow into those people that when we leave this place, it flows through us to those around us. The real fruit of repentance is not just confession, reconciliation, restitution, other things. Those are all acts of repentance. Friends, the real fruit of repentance is the freedom that we experience when we learn to respond to those things that the Holy Spirit's dealing with in our heart in a way that actually reshapes us. That's where the real fruit of repentance is. It's for freedom that you've been set free. Live in that freedom. Don't be shackled again by all that stuff. And the way that we stay free 
is we stay responsive every moment, every day, when the Holy Spirit speaks to us. And he doesn't come and lambast us. I, I remember when the boys were small. You know, they're playing with things. They leave things in the yard or they leave things on the floor, whatever the case may be. You know, when you come home as a loving parent, you know, what do you do? You just say, hey, buddy, would you, you, know, would you mind picking that up and put it back in the toy box? Would you, you know, that's all there is. You're not beating them over the head. You're not grounding them. You know, you're just, hey, I just noticed. Would you mind tidying that up? And that's the dealings of the Holy Spirit. When we walk with the Lord daily, when we're responsive to his voice daily, so many things the Holy Spirit just says, hey, 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 just take care of that. Maybe you didn't notice that. Just want to draw your attention to that. Just pick that up. Hey, let's clean that thing up. Let's, hey, let's check that attitude. Hey, we don't want to give the, the enemy a foothold. That's how the Lord wants to deal with us, that simple responsiveness that keeps us clean and free and, and keeps the flow of the Spirit in and through our lives. I've asked the worship team to sing this song. And as I do, I want to invite you right now just to bow your head and close your eyes as we come to the Lord's table. You know, the night before Jesus went to the cross, he met the disciples in a very intimate setting around the table, sharing a meal. And in that group was a snake. A man named Judas, a man whom Jesus, he washed his feet. He did everything he could to the very last moment to reach out to him and, and basically say, Judas, you don't have to do this. Not that the Lord was afraid of his destiny. He was going there anyway, but Judas did not have to be the vehicle. And the Lord reached out in love to him, calling him, calling him, calling him. But Judas couldn't let it go because he couldn't get past this feeling that, but your kingdom is not what I want. It's not what I bargained for. I don't want to pay the price. I want the kingdom on my terms. And he went off and he did what he did. And friends, all of us run the very real risk of being close to the things of God and yet living like the offspring of Satan. Because even though we're around religious things and very comfortable in those settings, just like Judas was, in fact, he even saw miracles and probably had his own hand. But when push came to shove, he still did what he wanted to do. And when push comes to shove, if you still do what you want to do, I'd say there's a serious question mark over your salvation. That's between you and the Lord. The true people of God hear the word of the Lord. Say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Because when all is said and done, I enjoy all this stuff, but when all is said and done, Lord, I just want you. I just want you. Would you bow your heads? And as the song is being sung, would you allow the Holy Spirit, give him permission to put his finger on anything, however long it's been, however small or great, and say, Lord, I don't want to play games anymore. I want to be part of the church of the Spirit of God, the bride of Christ in these days. I want you to have everything. I give you permission to go into every room, every closet. Because I just want you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, contact info at gtmoncton.com. Follow us on social media at GT Moncton or check out our website, gtmoncton.com. Have a great week and God bless.